Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back on the British Grand Prix and Hamilton Mania and ask if Mercedes has the upper hand over Ferrari. British Grand Prix was all about Lewis Hamilton, who took his record-equaling fifth victory in the British Grand Prix. That draws him level with Alan Prost and Jim Clark for most British Grand Prix wins. Although, it should be added that Nigel Mansell did win five World Championship Grand Prix on British soil, because he also won the 85 European Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, on top of the four British Grand Prix. So there's a little bit of extra trivia and pedantry there. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport. I'm in charge of the pedantry. And joining me to look back over the British Grand Prix is first Ben Anderson, Autosport's Grand Prix Editor. Obviously, Ben, you've seen a fair few Lewis Hamilton victories. Where do you reckon this one ranked? Uh, it's got to be right up there, I would say. Um, probably not as special as his 2008 win. Oh, that was wet. a fantastic win in the wet. Yeah, that might well go down as one of his best ever wins. It's one of the best wet weather drives, I'd say. So, yeah. But you know, certainly very good. Yeah, well done, Lewis Hamilton. I'm sure you'll be delighted uh, that he's got your seal of approval. Yeah. <laughs> and also joining me is Lawrence Barreto, our F1 correspondent, who was all over the paddock at Silverstone, chasing the news, British Grand Prix future, so on and so forth. Is, is the British Grand Prix always a busy weekend for you, Lazar? Lots of rushing around? Uh, it's definitely a weekend where you have to get up early. Uh, the schedule's changed a little bit. But uh, yeah, always a busy weekend. 
lots of uh, lots of excitement, really good atmosphere. One I look forward to. Do we have to pay you extra for getting up early? <laughs> you don't pay me extra, no. That's good. I've got that on record. I'm very, very pleased to hear that. So, without further ado, let's actually get on to the, the details of the race and have a good look back. The header I've got on the running order for this is Hamilton Mania, which was actually a cover line I put on Autosport magazine a few years ago after his 15 win. But if anything, since then, it, it really has, has grown. It's crowd surfing, lots of flags, massively popular. He revels in being in being the crowd favourite. This is his fourth consecutive win, in fact. He's won every single British Grand Prix in the V6, uh, turbocharged 1.6, various other airs, engine definitions, <laughs> etc. It's not a snappy era to name, is it? No. But he's won all four since the, the regs changed in, in 2014. And obviously he's picked up where he left off with the cars being even quicker there uh, this year. So, Penn, what do you think it is about Lewis Hamilton and Silverstone? Is it just purely a function of the fact he's been in the ascendancy for the past four years? So there's a fair chance he'd have won four British Grand Prix? Or do you think... This brings out the best in him, the the focus and having the crowd behind him doesn't let any of the negativity get into his head, shall we say? Oh, well, well, he certainly thinks so. I think he said that the crowd is worth half a second of that. So yeah, he's, a, so he's, a, a metaphorical half a second of so, that rather than a literal one. Oh, right. Okay. Because I was going to say in that on, on that basis, he owes most of his pole position margin to the crowd uh, from, from the weekend. Um, it's got to give you a boost, I think, hasn't it? Knowing that every member of the crowd is behind you wants you to win the race I mean he said um, after the race on Sunday that every lap he was going round he could see the crowd rising from their seats cheering him every lap and that was spurring him on Um, I think if there's one weekend in the year that he looks to bring the absolute best out of himself with nothing left on the table it's got to be for the British Grand Prix and I think that was important with the last couple of races. I had a fifth and a fourth place, lost some ground in the championships of Vettel. Not entirely through his own fault. He had the gearbox penalty in Austria and he had the headrest problem in, in Baku that, that cost him points. But I mean, I asked him about that half a second thing because he did that as a bit of a throwaway line in the press conference after getting pole. And I said, well, obviously it's not literal, is it? So can you just kind of explain what it means? And he says, well, it's like if you go into the office and go in and everyone hates you, you're not going to deliver to your best. Obviously, that's a feeling I know well coming into the office. Whereas if you come in and everyone's like, hey, yeah, it's really positive, you will get the best out of yourself. And I think probably the way I see it is it's a weekend where he can't let any negativity kind of enter his his mind. And he was absolutely loving it because not only did he do the the crowd surfing on the Sunday night, which is rapidly becoming his British Grand Prix trademark, but he was also on Saturday evening, he went over to the stage, we had all sorts of F1 personalities and he was there for ages signing autographs. He did the same thing on Sunday as well. I think he was going to make a 15-minute appearance and he was there for ages trying to sign not necessarily every single autograph because that would probably have been about 100,000 odd, but really investing the time and the effort and he does seem to get something out of it oh it was definitely all about lewis hamilton you had to look around and all the banners or flags that were up in the grandstand just opposite the pit lane were all for lewis hamilton they were union jacks those kind of things i think with the the london live thing just quickly on that i think it's, it's a different crowd in london uh, there were people who don't follow formula one are you being londonist was it the liberal media <laughs> elite that turns up in london no but it's the people who turned up at the crowd turned up were people who maybe just came after work wanted to see what Formula 1 was all about the people who paid the money to come to Silverstone are proper fans and so he'll know that when when he goes out that, that he'll know that they put their hard-earned money to come and see him um, and you mentioned about how much time he spent with the fans over the weekend a lot of the time he won't want to spend a lot of time extra on what he has to be there but he, he didn't really care about the time he just took as long as he needed I think it's interesting that um, Lewis embraces that element of the British Grand Prix so fully 
uh, spending time with the fans, giving more of his time to them than is usual for a Grand Prix weekend. Because if um, you read interviews with previous British Formula One stars, such as Damon Hill, they talk about the British Grand Prix bit, being a bit of an ordeal for them, um, enjoying the, the home support, but having all the extra attention, the scrutiny, the pressure, uh, the people wanting a piece of you can be quite draining. But Lewis seems to thrive on on that, which is, I think, perhaps unusual. He's also um, almost the sole focus of the British fans' attention now, isn't he? With Jensen Button having retired. Who finally got on the British Grand Prix podium. Yes, to do an interview. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, for the, for the home fans, it's all about Lewis. If he doesn't do well, then they go home unhappy. So he wants to deliver for them. Um, I suppose in Hill's time, there were many other British drivers on the grid doing reasonably well. So there was the love was spread, if you like, a bit more. Whereas I think it's particularly in the, the V6 era, v6 era now it's all about all about lewis and you could hear the cheering couldn't you Lawrence? we, we could hear it in the in the media center which is uh, quite well insulated from the track we don't look directly over onto the start finish track but you could hear the cheers when things were happening and when vettel had his as puncher for example the crowd was just delighted at anything that favored hamilton that happened in the race definitely i think it was the point on the grid just before the start of the race when Lewis got out of the car uh, and everyone cheered. And then there was a louder cheer, obviously, when he finally acknowledged them uh, to wait. And at that point, he didn't really have to acknowledge them because obviously everyone's in their mindset of getting ready for the race and stuff. But I think he still, even at that point, was acknowledging the importance of the fans. I think it's sincere as well. I think he he does enjoy it. He does feel a, a responsibility, I guess, to be, to be the home hero. And I think he's playing that role better and better, really. It's good to see the authenticity. Sometimes he's he's a character who can come across as a little bit uncomfortable. Obviously, after the race in Austria, he was a li- seemed a little bit distant, a little bit kind of unhappy with it. But there, he was absolutely playing the part to to perfection, and, and I think that's what makes it kind of Mansell-esque. And obviously, it wasn't just the British Grand Prix win that was the thing he was delighted about. But in the cold light of day, looking back on it, Mercedes was dominant. That Mercedes expected to have the upper hand there because of the characteristics of the car we expect a Mercedes to have the upper hand but the margin of that advantage was absolutely huge and that's going to be pretty worrying for Ferrari particularly the fact that Mercedes have won three of the last four races the Silverstone advantage will not carry to Hungary certainly not in that magnitude but Ben what do you reckon if you were Mercedes you'd be thinking yeah actually we're potentially on a decisive up upswing here if we can go to Hungary and win there then it's not game over but it's going to be proof that the the pendulum is swinging against Ferrari surely yeah Toto Wolff has said that he wants to see really what happens in Hungary because that will be the acid test of how much improvement Mercedes have made in terms of unlocking the potential of their own car we know they had a difficult start to the season pre-season testing didn't go so well they've had a few difficulties getting the setup right and working the tyres properly on the on the WA um they're going to have fewer problems at high-speed tracks like Silverstone where you can load the tyres up properly. Obviously, they can exploit the the engine advantage they still have over the competition that little bit more. But Hungary will be one of those uh, street-style tracks um, using the softest tyre compounds. Um, with the rival cars from Ferrari and Red Bull, their characteristics more suiting that track naturally. So if Mercedes still has a dominant advantage in Hungary, they'll know that they've really turned the corner and this championship will be theirs to lose. It's quite a nice comparison, actually. You're, you've got tracks almost at either end of the spectrum in terms of the, the characteristics, etc. So I guess Ferrari will be will be pretty worried. There was a point in the race, I did the, the race report on autosport.com and autosport mag, there was a period of six laps 
in the build-up to the first pit stops where Hamilton lent on it, and he pulled away from Raikkonen at a second a lap, which is huge. Um, so what, what do you make of it, Lawrence? Obviously, the one factor you have to question there is if that was Kimi Raikkonen performing at kind of his normal level, was it Vettel being under par, and therefore could a Vettel getting the best out of the car have been three-tenths up the road, four-tenths up the road in terms of lap time, and therefore mitigated the gap a bit? Do we think it was an, it was an honest reflection? I think it's difficult, really, to put any uh, firm answer on that. Um, we'll have to wait and see, like you said, to Hungary. I think the fact that the gap was so big in terms of the size is worrying for Ferrari. And you could see in, when Seb was talking about it after the race, he was clearly concerned about the the magnitude of the gap. I think he was talking about qualifying and saying it was the game changer, the difference in the, the pace between Mercedes and Ferrari. So I think I think there is concern within Ferrari, despite the improvement that, that they've made this season. I think Ferrari should probably temper those fears a little bit with the fact that we talk a lot about track characteristics suiting certain teams and cars and um, through the seasons and we know the rules have changed a lot this year so perhaps some of the prior knowledge doesn't apply but Ferrari have struggled at Silverstone recently last year they weren't very competitive it was one of their worst circuits and Raikkonen was also more competitive there than Vettel but so it's certainly not a Vettel track He's only got a couple of poles and one win there. It's obviously a terrible record, but you know, it's, it's, it's not a track that he gets the best out of himself at. So I can, the, the kind of probability is there was maybe a little bit more on the table, certainly for him. Yeah, I would, I would say so. And it's one of Raikkonen's stronger tracks. So you could probably take Ferrari's gap to Mercedes as fairly representative. A lot, I think, is, is still in the engine. Um, that's what really the Vettel was referring to in terms of Mercedes game-changing qualifying pace. They have this Q3 mode that Ferrari still can't match. Vettel believes the Ferrari is a stronger car in the corners. Um, obviously, Silverstone has a lot of corners too, but as Christian Horner was pointing out, with the nature of the cars now, it's uh, turned some corners that previously weren't flat out into flat out corners, which extends the straights. And of course, with these hybrid engines recovering energy and having a limited amount of use per lap in certain aspects that means having the most efficient and most powerful engine is going to be a bigger advantage than on other types of track. And that's why Mercedes, I think, is so far ahead on other circuits. It won't be such a problem. And if Ferrari can find more from the engine, which we understand they're working on and um, quite hard, then they should be able to close that gap to Mercedes. And, of course, the Ferrari isn't the strongest car in the fastest corners, is it? So there's a lot of things that were against it which is why I think it's uh, the gap will have been exaggerated, certainly. But it's kind of where that pendulum swings back to, if you want to take the gap as a second as it was at times in the race, which is probably a bit exaggerated. But if the pendulum swings back seven-tenths for track characteristics, that's still a three-tenths difference, which is much bigger than it was at the start of the season. So that's, that's the interesting interesting question, I guess, for, for Ferrari. And it's, a, it's a test for Ferrari, isn't it, Lawrence? Because we've seen Ferrari working much better this year. There have been times in the past few years where, well, last year, obviously 2015 was a strong year, where there seemed to be quite a bit of finger-pointing, a little bit of politics. And when things go wrong, sometimes the reaction isn't always the best. So I guess this is quite a nice test for Ferrari, isn't it, to see whether the style of team we've seen this year is able to sustain that when things are going not so well and look at itself, really understand where, if anywhere, they, they may or may not be falling behind on development and just make sure they can all pull together in the right direction. I think I think you're right. I think it is the first big test for them. I think so far they seem to have done a pretty good job of making the most of what they've got. Um, I think this year um, we've talked about the harmony and the atmosphere in the team and all that kind of stuff, and that you know that all seems to be really good. Seb and Kimmy obviously get on very well, 
and in terms of car development, I think you know they kept up reasonably well with Mercedes this year in a in a scenario where they haven't really been in that position the last couple of years. So it will be interesting to see yeah, how how they get on. Um, a lot of people are talking about this development race this year uh, and just the importance of making sure you allocate your resources correctly. So we'll just have to wait and see whether they've they've done that. Plus, of course, there was the tyre failure issue. The front left of both Kimi and Sebastian Vettel uh, let them down. Pirelli was at pains to say they were different failures because the tread came off Raikkonen's tyre. The carcass was still inflated. Uh, in the case of Vettel, it was a full-on puncher. Gary Anderson, our technical expert, says, well, you can have slightly different outcomes to the same core problem. So you imagine the probability is there that the cause is similar, but that's something Ferrari needs to understand what the problem is. Others were a bit marginal. Obviously, Red Bull with Max Verstappen, when they saw what happened to Raikkonen, took the the safe option and brought him in for a, a new set with only a couple of laps to go. So what, what do we make of that? Well, I'm no tyre engineer, but... Really? If I, no. Get out. <laughs> um, no tyre engineer, but if I was to um, fall on one side of the fence, I'd say it's probably going to be a Pirelli problem. Um, we know the difficulties they've had in producing the, the control tyre for this formula, not knowing how quick the cars are going to be, how much downforce they're going to produce. They've come, come under fire for picking tyres that are too hard. They've tried to go softer from Silverstone onwards. Um and it all comes down to this blistering problem, doesn't it? It surfaced in Austria, didn't have any impact ultimately really on the, the race result, but lots of teams struggled with tyre blistering. Um, and then we saw it again at Silverstone. And that's got Hamilton, to- of course, had a blister. He was having to manage a little bit. Yeah, and the Red Bulls, as you mentioned, you know, the Ferraris, obviously. And that's got to be a function of how much load is going through the tyre, how hot it's getting, and also the pressure. We know that Pirelli mandates these very high minimum tyre pressures for safety reasons which we assume means integrity reasons and of course the the more you're running on a smaller patch of the tyre the hotter and more stressed it's going to get and then I imagine you see these um, deformations and blisters begin to form so we have to wait and see what Pirelli come back with in their investigation but I would imagine um, with my limited knowledge and understanding that it's going to have something to do with how fast the cars are going now as they develop and this minimum starting pressure that means the tyres are always running more inflated than the teams would like. Lawrence Barretto, unlike Ben, you are a tyre engineer, aren't you? No, I was going to say I'm also not a tyre engineer. This is terrible. Where are all the tyre engineers? So I'm not sure how useful what I'm about to say is going to be. Um, I on that basis, I think we'll just have to wait and see what Pirelli say. They say they need a couple of days to, to work it out. I think give them the benefit of the doubt at this stage. Um, they are working with the new uh, tyre this year. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. And you have to say, in fairness, there were quite a lot of cars that did a one-stop strategy and didn't have problems. So you've always got to factor in what the chassis characteristics. I doubt if it's a coincidence that it was both the Ferraris that, that hit trouble necessarily, that all the cars will work the tyres in slightly different ways some of them could have a little bit more sliding across the surface that can put different pressures on the tyre different temperatures different strains on the on the tyre shoulder etc and I suspect the understanding from Pirelli for what the problem is is why for example Mercedes were pretty much okay and why Ferrari and maybe uh, to a lesser extent Red Bull were hitting some trouble. Interesting that the blisters occurred on the fastest cars on the grid as well by some margin the Red Bull Mercedes the Ferrari not really the other cars but the other interesting thing is that Pirelli in the pre-event 
notes for Silverstone, uh, said that the uh, blistering sensitivity front and rear end would be low for Silverstone. So it seems that there's some misunderstanding in terms of how the data they're getting is matching up with what's happening on track. And certainly Silverstone was interesting for them in terms of the just how much quicker it was, because obviously you've got some very fast corners there, and Cops, Beckett's Maggots in particular, is obviously very, very demanding for tyres. There was a big increase in speed, and obviously it's it's difficult to, to simulate these things. I haven't tested at Silverstone, so there's a little bit of a benefit of the doubt you have to give because Pirelli is limited in terms of what real-world testing it can do. So there's maybe a degree of a free pass there but obviously they need to understand exactly why this is because we've got a spa coming up not too long away and obviously different circuit but still with some very quick corners so that's going to be if there is a problem there that's going to be a track that will repeat it yeah and they've they've also got the problem of having to design control tires for the full range of circuits on the calendar they're not designing a tire bespoke for silverstone a tire bespoke for spa a tire bespoke for singapore so they have to make compromises to to get across the the full range. Also, Pirelli deliberately went softer on their compound choices for Silverstone under pressure from the teams based on their earlier choices. Um, and they were probably banking on the teams going for two-stop strategies at minimum. But because they, of- they were certainly talking about two-stop strategies on Friday, although they did say that a one-stopper was was perfectly possible. Hmm. And that comes down to you know this drive they've had to reduce degradation in the tyres if the degradation was a bit higher then teams would have stopped more and put the tyres under less strain so it's a difficult balancing act and one I still think that they're they're working out given how much has changed over the winter. It's strange really because obviously we have these three tyres allocated very often the hardest one isn't used I think the only time we saw the medium in the race was on Verline bolted on for a lap under the safety car so that's perhaps a function of the fact that you're trying to cover a whole season with a small number of, of tyre compounds and then you go to an outlier track like this and there, there are going to be problems. It's no coincidence that Silverstone's been a place where tyre problems have manifested themselves in, in the past. Looking at two of the drivers who had tyre problems, Vettel who had the failure, Verstappen who had the late pit stop for security reasons, obviously they had an interesting battle early in the race. Verstappen got ahead of Vettel at the start, had a little bit of a go at trying to get past Raikkonen and then Vettel got back past through the, the turn two kink and then Verstappen went round him at the, at the loop after Vettel got a bit stuck behind Raikkonen. And that was a that was a fun battle. Yeah, very feisty and just what you want to see from the top drivers. Um, we know Verstappen goes well at Silverstone and he made Nico Rosberg's life quite hard there last year in the, the mixed conditions. Um, he was always going to be on the defensive in the Red Bull, I think, um, even though he managed to split the Ferraris early on and... Whether their battle was fair or not, I mean, it was certainly hard and there was some, you know, forcing off track and uh, almost bashing of wheels from both drivers. I think Vettel was particularly critical of Verstappen because of his repeated behaviours last year defensively. And obviously we know um, what happened in Mexico and how irate Vettel was at Verstappen's behaviour in that race. So I think he's always going to judge Verstappen perhaps a little bit more harshly than some of his other rivals. Um but yeah, good good stuff. Snapping, getting his elbows out, trying to make sure Vettel wouldn't come past. He was ultimately fighting a losing battle, I think, all the way. But yeah, it was great to see. Obviously, Lawrence, you uh, asked Vettel about his thoughts on the Verstappen battle after the race. Well, we both did, actually. Yeah, we had a, had a couple of goes at him to see what we had to say. He he made a reference to the fact that Verstappen will kind of calm down as he gets a bit more experience. I must admit, when he said that, 
it did make me laugh a little bit because I was thinking back to when in 2010 Vettel was getting a little bit of criticism. I think was it Whitmarsh, uh, Martin Whitmarsh, then the team principal of McLaren, he referred to him as a crash kid after he'd made the error at Spa at Chicane and, and hit Jensen Button. Do you think Vettel has a point about Verstappen? Do you think it's a legitimate moving around in the braking zone, pushing off the track with the with the objections? But the stewards didn't seem to mind. So do you, do you have any problem with what Verstappen was doing? I think Seb started off by suggesting he had a problem, then he kind of softened. Um, I think from Max's point of view, he's had a really bad run of form. So it's quite important for him to really show, to, maybe to himself, but also to everyone else, that you know he is around. And I think he took advantage of the situation that Seb was fighting for a title battle. So maybe he might have just eased off that little bit extra. Does he have a point? Well, when I'm punished uh, in the race, spoke to Jacques Villeneuve after the race, and he said, well, no, it, you know, it, it, he didn't see it being a problem. Um, and he normally has something to say about these kind of things. Um, yeah, what, if Jack Villeneuve doesn't think it's a problem, I think we can we can say it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they tweaked the rules, I think, didn't they, earlier this year to kind of try and guard against that. So I think uh, it's good that they kind of left that alone and, and they let a good battle kind of unfold. And by the sounds of the crowd, they loved it. I think it's also quite easy to look at Verstappen's driving, given his age, and say, oh, well, he's a young driver. He's, he's going to mature a bit more as he gets older and calm down some of these kind of more wild instincts but I don't really see it like that I think Verstappen knows exactly what he's doing if you watch him in all of his wheel-to-wheel battles even the ones that go wrong his judgment is right on the absolute limit which is risky in the grand scheme of things but usually absolutely millimeter perfect so if he's doing something it will be absolutely to the limit of the the law and no more and if the law is changed, he'll adjust his driving. I don't think he's a guy that's coming in and, and doing crazy things that he needs to to get on top of. He's he's racing to win to the absolute limit of the, the regulations. Well, this is in the finest tradition of Ayrton Senna and Michael Schumacher, isn't it? Be Absolutely. at the limit, do everything you possibly can do. And, and you can see what happens. The interesting thing will be once, and he will one day be in a title fight once he's got the card, no question. What will happen when it's kind of a meeting of equals, shall we say? Because when it's when it's Verstappen versus Vettel, and Vettel's in the championship hunt, Verstappen knows Vettel is going to going to ease off and and back out a bit because he can't afford to have a collision with someone he's not having a proper battle with. But if it comes down to head to head for the championship with whoever, whether it's Vettel, Hamilton, Ricardo, one of these drivers, and they're both not wanting to see to each other. What happens then? That's when you have to kind of modify your behaviour and play the percentages. That's going to be really interesting to see. But I think in that situation, Verstappen's aggression and willingness to go to the limit will, in general, be a positive in those scenarios. Although I have no doubt that if we look back at if we, we jump twenty years into the future and look back, we're able to look back at his career, there'll be a few flashpoints caused by that as well. Yeah, in that kind of scenario, I think you make a very good point. He will have to rein himself. In a bit, at the moment, you can see he knows he's in a car that's capable of being maybe second best on some tracks, usually third best. That's been the case the last two years. So he's got nothing to lose in those battles. He starts the race thinking, right, I'm going to fly into the first corner and make up as many positions as I can and hang on. And you can take liberties sometimes in those scenarios with drivers who you know have a lot more to lose. When he's in a situation where he's got a lot to lose, maybe things will be different. Certainly, if he cannot adjust his technique in those situations, then that will be a, a problem for him. But everything we've seen so far suggests that Max Verstappen's pretty on top of what he's doing. And I think when he needs to rein it in, he probably will. 
And certainly it was good to have a, a little bit to please the crowd, particularly in the first part of the race. Obviously, there was also the Valtteri Bottas coming through from ninth through to second in the end. He came through to third, got ahead of Vettel, and then he was closing on Raikkonen, but I think it would have been very... Something odd would have had to happen for him to get ahead. Obviously, something <laughs> odd did happen with Raikkonen hitting trouble, but that was also... Cause we saw a little bit of a Vettel battling with Bottas, had the big lock-up as well into Stowe, which actually Mario Isola of Pirelli said he didn't think had anything to do with the, the Vettel problem, although that was a very much a, well, that's what we think at this stage. We're, we're still, we're still analysing. It was interesting, I thought, to see Bottas being able to chip away and overhaul Vettel because that's kind of what he's there to do, isn't it? And again, it's the question of, in a normal race, would, would Raikkonen starting ninth of an L to come through and do that? Capable of doing it, certainly. Can he be relied upon to do it? Maybe not. I think it really helped Bottas that this race happened at the track where Mercedes is showing its strongest form so far. I think the engine advantage plays a lot into what happened we know Mercedes updated for Barcelona um, their engines to be able to run them at full power for or higher power should we say for longer in the races and I think that plays out the you know through the races um, and at Silverstone the track with 70% full throttle I think Horner said that's going to help Bottas a lot in terms of coming through and also Vettel um, was hampered by losing ground to Verstappen early on gave Raikkonen the breathing space he needed but, to but guarantee also, second. But also Vettel, qualify better, make a better start and you're ahead, aren't you? That, I, I think that was Vettel's weakest performance of the year overall. It doesn't mean it was a weak performance, it just wasn't a really strong one because he, he could have come out of that race, the tyre problem notwithstanding, with a stronger a stronger result. And maybe that's just because it's not, not his favourite circuit. Like you say, the, the comparison with him and Raikkonen it has been more of a Raikkonen circuit the past few years. And historically, not one for him. I think it's yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, um, the Ferrari has been a strong race car so far, so you could say, countering my own point, that in the races they should do better relative to Mercedes than uh, they do in qualifying. But for some reason, the unique combination of Silverstone, the track layout, Mercedes getting on top of their car, Ferrari's engine maybe not working as well as they would like, drivers maybe not quite as on it as they have been, just meant that really Mercedes had quite an... An easy day, but still a great drive from Bottas to come through. I mean, he's been really spurred on, I think, by that recovery in Baku when he was a lap down and came back to second. I know that was a particularly crazy race with lots of incidents, but he certainly that fixed this idea in his mind that even when the race isn't going well or the weekend isn't going well, he shouldn't give up. There's still going to be a chance he can come through and get a strong result, and he's done it again. In the last couple of races, I really get the impression that Bottas probably now believes that he can actually have a chance you know of good results at Mercedes um you mentioned Baku um obviously Austria as well was it was a great weekend for him he seems to just be taking his opportunities when he gets them and that's that's so important for him to be doing that this season at you know at the times when Lewis is going to have off weekends you know Seb's going to have off weekends as well and Bottas always seems to be there so you know recently to pick up the pieces and actually again even though he finished behind Hamilton he's got close to the championship lead from that so he's got to the halfway point of the season what is he? 177 points for Vettel, 176 for Hamilton, 154 to Bottas. If you'd said to him at the start of the year, at the halfway point of the season, you're going to have won two Grand Prix, that's going to be your position and you'd have had a, a good run of races. He'd have been delighted with that, which is why he's definitely, well, as near as near as definitely going to get a, a new deal. I think it's more of a question of how long that deal is than whether he gets one. I think he would be fairly nonplussed, actually. People talk about Bottas in this 
scenario doing better than expected but in terms of his own mindset I think that this is absolutely what he expected no he's not doing I don't think he's doing better than he'd be expected but if it's that kind of thing of would that be a satisfactory return I think he said yeah I'm happy with I'm happy with that that's a good position to be in because ultimately this is the kind of thing we were expecting so I don't think he'd be jumping up and down as such but you know (laughs) it it's more I'm more thinking in terms of yeah job done kind of thing and he'll know there's more to come because the second half of the season should be better than the first half yeah, absolutely. I mean, personally, I didn't think that he would win two races in the first half of the year. I thought it would take him a bit longer to get his feet firmly under the table at Mercedes, work everything out that he needs to work out, especially considering how late his deal came together. But it just proves what a quality driver he is. Yeah, and actually, he was particularly strong in the fast corners at Silverstone. Um, he, he was particularly mighty, and he was just a little bit unfortunate that, for whatever reason, they struggled with tyre warm-up in Q3, and in the low-speed corners, he was just really struggling for grip, so he ended up fourth fastest which put him back to ninth so that compromised the race a little bit obviously had the gearbox uh the gearbox penalty thanks to them running the the seamless shift a little bit too aggressively that's caused the the penalties that both Hamilton and, and Bottas have had in the in the past two races obviously we also saw a lot of overtaking although some of the moves we missed from Daniel Ricciardo another driver who well he had a grid penalty but it was irrelevant because he'd had the engine problem in Q1 and so he started from well, he started from 19th, actually. So actually, he started one place better than he qualified because Alonso had <laughs> even more uh, grid penalties. Than Ludicrous. Him. But it's a good drive. It was a, it's a mega drive from Ricardo, apart from the fact that he did he did make a mistake while trying to go around the outside of, of Grosjean. But that's, Lawrence, more crowd-pleasing stuff from Ricardo, really, wasn't it? It's just good to see him just enjoying himself, really. It's good to see drivers doing that and saying, yeah, I was a load of cars. It's great. Really enjoyed it. Well, it wasn't looking good when he ended up in the gravel, was it, at Luffield? Uh, he got on the team radio and they said, oh, is your car all right? And I think he said an expletive. So I don't think it was looking all that brilliant at Bleak the time. Bleak nose. Um, but like you said, I think um, he's made, he's had such a good run of form of late. Like, is it, was it five podiums before? Yeah, in five a row? consecutive, yeah. Um, before he got there. Uh, and I think the important thing is for him is that he seems to be taking advantage of the fact that Max isn't doing so well. So he's really putting himself in that position, making sure he's taking all of those opportunities. He he's an excitable kind of person anyway, but uh, in the interviews after the race, he genuinely seemed delighted to have just had a great time overtaking cars. That's clearly what he he's there for. That's what gets him up there in the morning. And it's just nice that he is showing that to the fans, I think. He's just a high-class driver, isn't it? Every race, you know, okay, he ended up in the gravel for, partly through his own high-risk approach to go around the outside of Grosjean. Ricardo, after the race, did say, well, yeah, Grosjean ran me wide, but also... Perhaps it wasn't the wise move for me to put myself there. I just like the fact he's able to kind of do this stuff with just such a touch of class. Almost all of his passing manoeuvres that he ever conducts are are very classy ones. A couple right on the limit, but he knows where that limit is and you can never really pick him up. So it just makes him a one of these drivers who's a, who's a joy to watch. You know, how often do you have someone like Vettel was with Verstappen having a go at Ricardo after a race? Very occasionally, but vanishingly rare. Yeah, absolutely. Ricardo's a class act and his overtaking is one of his strongest points but the he way he doesn't hang about either does he, he gets no 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 he, he gets stuck in but he, the way he does it is with that maybe slight slight playing of the percentages that that doesn't require the other guy to jump off the track or do something to make sure you get both get through safely and i think it comes back to the way he first approached it when he became a kind of front for, front runner for the first time in 2014, he had lots of good battles with the likes of Alonso, 
who all praise the way he went wheel to wheel and he's earned respect from the top drivers for the way he goes about things so then when he comes to make moves later on in his career they're they're wouldn't say more forgiving of him but they know they can race hard and fair with him and they're not going to have a problem so therefore he he doesn't need to worry about how the other driver is going to behave when he comes up behind them he's also matured a lot in his time at Red Bull I think when he first got in to the Red Bull team he felt that it was only going to be a matter of time before championships were falling his way and unfortunately Red Bull has entered one of its least competitive periods as he's as he's risen to prominence but he's learned to relax and enjoy his racing a bit more in the last season and a half um he knows that he's got a great life traveling the world racing in formula one occasionally winning races battling with all these top drivers and although that won't satisfy his ultimate ambition he knows that circumstances play a role in whether you win world titles or not he's managed to let go some of that uh, unrealistic expectation if you like and just enjoy his racing and you can see that on the track and I think that'll pay dividends if and when he gets into a genuine title challenging situation. He he has been around for a while, but he's still only twenty eight, so you know, he could be at the top level in F one easily for, for ten years, and I'm sure he'll get a title shot one day. But what a what a brilliant world champion for F one Daniel Ricardo could be in the future, just this just this guy who seems delighted to be there, whatever whatever happens, which I think is is nice to see. It's good to see a reminder that they do actually enjoy it. And that's something he does in a way that doesn't compromise his overall approach it's not like he's having a laugh not taking it seriously so he's he's almost the, the star that f1's kind of got but he just needs that that good enough car to explode doesn't he lawrence but it's also that's also a good way to keep the pressure off him i think usain bolt does that a lot like when he goes out and about and he messes around with the crowd and stuff it just kind of just takes the edge off the whole occasion so it just takes the dress away um I think um, we've obviously had in recent years Nico and and Lewis and they've had different approaches to kind of embracing their star status. I think he would be a great world champion. I think he'd do everything that Bernie always used to say that he wants drivers who goes out there and and gets Formula 1 into areas where people don't think about F1 and I think he would do exactly that. Red Bull are quite good at doing a lot of videos and kind of Ricardo's often like filming himself doing various videos on social media and stuff and he always comes across so well. So I think if he keeps doing that and he's winning things, it's going to be it's the perfect thing for Formula One. Just needs to get into a, a good enough car. So it'll be interesting to see how things pan out once uh, contracts are done for a couple of years down the line. There could be a, a potential shake-up. There might not be a shake-up. It's too early to say at this stage. Obviously, we saw a few other good performances. Nico Hulkenberg. Obviously, Renault looked a little bit unconvincing the past few races, but he stuck it well fifth on the grid after, after penalties and he finished sixth. Obviously, he was... Struggling to hold off Ricardo at the end, had a little bit of a an exhaust leak, which compromised the ability to harvest uh, electrical energy via the MGUH. So that cost him that, but then he got that back when Vettel hit trouble. So a very good sixth place from from Nico Hulkenberg. Ben, new floor on that car. Is this kind of the return? Do we think to that upward curve we saw Renault on at the start of the year? Because it was a little bit of a surprise. We saw them maybe get going a little bit quicker than we expected. Then there seemed to be this point where we thought, oh, hang on a minute, where's where's that running momentum gone? Yeah, I think so. Um, the new floor, it sounds like that will give them the basis now from which to develop the car for the rest of the season. I think their qualifying pace at the start of the season, while everyone else was still finding their feet with the tyres and suspension and set up, surprised even them, but they couldn't translate, translate that into strong race pace. And then they go back on the setup, find a better compromise for the race, but it would hurt them in qualifying. 
Um, as I understand it, they have had some problems in the area of the floor aerodynamically at certain types of corner, certain speeds. It looks as though this floor has potentially solved those. Um, and it so allowed. It's not, it's not just about the lap time gain, isn't it? Which was about a tenth and a half round Silverstone, but it's about what it then allows you to do in terms of unlocking future things. If you need your floor to work because that's one of the things you build build a car performance on. It's got to be predictable and consistent to allow you to, because otherwise you just bolt on downforce elsewhere and it's inconsistent. Yeah, absolutely. The the floor is particularly powerful now under the new regulations, bigger dimensions. There's more to come from underneath the car. So if you've got inconsistencies or elements that are not quite working as expected or not correlating there, it's going to cause you problems, not just in terms of overall downforce, but in terms of how the car behaves at different states within different cornering challenges. And that just leaks your lap time. If Renault now finally has a floor that, is much stronger in all areas that's going to allow them to unlock a lot more performance and I think you saw the first signs of that at Silverstone obviously Hulkenberg's been driving brilliantly this year and it seems like that team is moulding around him quite quickly as their star driver um, and he was back to the the head of the midfield uh, at Silverstone and and that's where Renault need to be as, as a minimum really this year considering the the context of their project and what they're trying to do as a works team. We also saw Lawrence Stoffel van Dorn finishing 11th. He could have got a point had he maintained track position over Massa during the pit stops, a slow stop. Cost him that place. If he'd been ahead of Massa, there's a good chance he'd have been able to stay ahead and nab a point. Obviously, he qualified strongly as well, compared well to Fernando Alonso. This struck me as the first time over a whole weekend we've really seen the real Stoffel van Dorn almost. It seems that he's managed to get his head around the whole situation and kind of recalibrate everything and, and work through a weekend in the right way rather than trying to chase doing something the car can't do etc i think this was definitely stoffel's best weekend of the year and when you speak in uh during the media session on saturday evening uh you could just tell he was just a bit happier i think he was just happy with how everything was going that weekend he spoke about how the the results of that weekend is to do with a lot of just hard work that he's been putting in over a series of races um I, the interesting thing is whether he's going to be able to do this on a consistent basis. He's obviously had that flash where he was strong in Monaco and then he kind of dropped down a little bit. So it'll just be interesting to see whether he can keep this going um, throughout the, the rest of the season. It'll come down to the, the whole mental strength side, won't it? And I think he has got that. So I think we probably will see. We're not going to see him beating Fernando Alonso every week, obviously, because nobody does that. But I think if he can be on a similar level overall, it's perfectly within him. I think to do that because this is still a driver who's got who's got serious serious potential. And you know, McLaren has got a huge number of problems, but I don't think Stoffel Van Dorn, despite the fact that on paper the results so far this season have been a bit patchy, is one of them. No, I mean, his performances have been largely very disappointing. Um, even allowing for the fact that McLaren Honda obviously has many technical problems, and he's a rookie driver effectively, even though he did that one one race in 2016. Um, but McLaren are invested in Van Dorn in a, a quite serious way and they've you know, made some important moves in terms of trying to build a, a team of engineers around him to better understand how he works, what he needs from the car, how he can exploit more of his own potential. He's quite a quiet and reserved character. He's not a very domin- domineering personality in the way Alonso is and also that team, as we've seen over the last few seasons, has moulded itself around Alonso, moved towards his technical direction it's been difficult for Van Dorn to come in and drive a car that's set up around Alonso in and his very particular style so it's all about how McLaren 
understand how to get the best out of Van Dorn and, and working back from there. And it seems like they've made some serious progress after the last over the last few races. It was interesting that he performed so well in Monaco when Alonso wasn't there. And then as soon as Alonso came back into the team, he was back to struggling again. Important for him to have a weekend finally under normal circumstances alongside Alonso where he performs strongly, especially considering that Van Dorn holds Alonso in very high esteem. And I think it's difficult to go up against a driver that you grew up looking up to in the same team in Formula One. But it seems as, as if slowly but surely Van Dorn's getting on top of the problems. Yeah, and I think there's a reasonable chance we'll see him achieve that consistency that we need to see. This can't just be a flash in the pan now. It needs to be consistent. Moving on to corporate head protection. Lawrence, the Shield made a very brief appearance on Sebastian Vettel's Ferrari on Friday morning at Silverstone. He wasn't especially keen on it, though, was he? Uh, No, he wasn't. Uh, The FIA did a reasonable job in actually getting it to Silverstone. I think the initial plans were to try and run it for the first time in Monza. Um, so there was an element of positivity when we were we heard it was going to be on the Ferrari. Uh, the initial run plan was to do it for more than a lap. Uh, they bought it on the car. Seb went out and decided he didn't fancy it. Uh, he, he decided he said it was he felt dizzy, um, and he just generally didn't like the feeling. I think there was, the curvature kind of created this kind of distorted uh, impact, and the fact that he wanted to take off after just one lap uh, is a slight concern. Uh, he gave his feedback uh, to the rest of the drivers in the briefing on Friday, um, and from the one the drivers that I spoke to, they you know they kind of backed his you know backed his suggestion on that. That's a bit of a concern now because that was the one really that the FIA were backing. They want to introduce some form of head protection, uh, cockpit protection next season, uh, and there's still a lot of people who don't really like the halo. So when you've got those two. Uh, at the front of the field and time rapidly running out to introduce something for next year. It's not looking all that brilliant. Well, the Shield concept looks like a sound one because this is a prototype, obviously. So if you can achieve with the materials and the design, putting it on without it creating vision problems, then that eliminates one of the, the criticisms, doesn't it? And there will be ways to do that. You know, jet fighter canopies exist, etc. So there will be the possibility to do this. I think the question is with the FIA resolve to introduce it next year, it's pretty difficult to see a variant of the Shield being developed, designed, tested, signed off in time to be put into the regs for next year, which then brings us back to the Halo, which does exist. It does work such as it is, but it's actually much more limited than the Shield because it's it's great for large objects. I think last year in Hungary, Charlie, Hungary or Germany, Germany maybe it was, Charlie Whiting said that it only stopped 17% of small objects so obviously, such as the the massa, the, the damper spring off uh, Rubens Barrichello's brawn that hit him in the head in, in Hungary, that's the kind of thing that that'll only be stopped seventeen percent of the time as a small object. So it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it sounds like the halo is the is the fullback option. So are we going to see the halo next year? I hope not. The halo looks ugly. It's unpopular. It doesn't really solve the problems that it's. It's, it's a partial solution, isn't it? I think it's a it's a sort of terrible hybrid really. Um, they want to have a closed cockpit solution without going closed cockpit. Well, that that to me is the thing where it gets stupid because you look at the shield and you think, well, actually, it, it's, like a, it's like in sports car racing, not the fact they're closed, but in sports car racing, they have to be nominally two-seaters. So you have this nominal passenger seat that's normally got battery packs and all sorts of things. And you kind of think, well, why bother when you have this kind of nod to it? Why bother have this nod to it being an open cockpit? If you want to have a shield thing, why not just fully enclose it and that is probably the debate that needs to be had yeah i think that they should pause the whole thing 
and decide once and for all, do we want to stay open cockpit, i.e. as we are, or do we want to go properly closed cockpit for safety reasons and then come up with a serious, credible, proper solution that can take Formula 1 in that direction and stop having this half-assed approach where you try and please all camps because it, it never works. And this isn't going to happen by next year, is it? Well, the trouble is the FIA have committed to introducing something next year and it's going to be difficult for them to step back from that given that they've been pushing safety. So for them to then say, oh, okay, we're going to push back another year, I think it's going to be a bit of a slap in the, in the face. So I think we're probably edging towards a scenario where we have the halo for a year and then we get something like the Shield from 2019 or something like that. I think that's looking at where we are at the moment. That's where we're heading to. I know that they're going to be discussing it at the strategy group this week. Uh, so I imagine we'll make a, a further step forward on, on, on where we are with that. I think there's a degree of backing themselves into a corner. They have this thing of we will have it next year. And then you end up with kind of this slightly compromised, not that good solution. And then another concept that maybe is the right sort of direction, but needs quite a lot more work in it. It seems to me like... Overcommitted. With some, exactly. With something like that, you need to decide, okay, have have your targets or whatever. But the first thing is, is there a viable design that is fit for purpose and that ticks all the boxes in terms of the safety improvement in terms of the, the visual side? So it's difficult. I think the one thing about the Shield is it, it is much more subtle, perhaps, than, than it might have looked. The original shots we saw of it on the Thursday at Silverstone, it looked pretty hideous actually from from head on in fact it does look it's worse from dead head on but actually once you're to the side of it it's it's pretty inoffensive so aesthetically it's it's the better option but yeah there's a there's a mess to be unraveled there and in fact talking about messes to be unraveled british grand prix future obviously in the build-up to the race we had the news that the the contract break clause was being invoked which would make the the last race of the current deal 2019 uh it's part of a 17-year deal that was signed in 2010 Obviously, Silverstone said, well, we lost uh, 2.8 million in 2015, 4.8 million in, in 2016. There's a 5% escalator in it, so it cost 11.5 million to run in 2010, 16.2 just to hold the race in 2017. So they're saying, well, we can't afford this. It's an interesting situation they've put themselves in because doing it on the brink of the race, especially at a time when we had the, the London demo as well that Liberty was heavily involved in putting on to partly promote the British Grand Prix. And obviously, Liberty didn't want this clause to be activated they said well look, we'll give you a bit more time to break clause let's just not do it now but this is a big this is quite a big not necessarily line in the stand it's it's a it's a kind of aggressive position that silverstone's taking it's saying right we're not we're going to make a public statement say this is why we can't hold this race in the long term on this deal liberty sort it out so it's put the pressure on liberty and that that's interesting to me because it's quite confrontational isn't it so is this the right move from Silverstone's perspective, is this going to lead to a cheaper long-term deal, which is what they want? I'm not sure if it was the most sensible option to go so publicly and so aggressive, as you say, with it. Obviously, we don't know or have a completely clear idea of how Liberty work yet because they're still new into the game. But it does seem like they come in with a negotiating approach that's more conciliatory, that seems to be trying to help promoters put on viable races if they can rather than just like it or lump it approach that Bernie Eccleston took and it seems to me like Silverstone are behaving as if Bernie was still running the show and I think we know that they've been mulling over this break clause for a long time it's not like a sudden move but I wonder if they'd have been better served to to put the brakes on it and talk to Liberty more 
in the background and only do this as an absolute last resort. It seems to me, without knowing whether they've had all these back channel negotiations, that they've just unnecessarily antagonised F1's owners when they probably didn't really need to at this stage. And this is going to take some time to unravel, isn't it, Lawrence? Because the last thing Liberty can do is say, okay, we'll give you a cheaper deal. Here's your long-term contract on a much cheaper rate to run the race because then they're going to have 19 other venues going, uh, break clause, sorry. And then they're going to end up suddenly with the revenues dramatically down. So what? how does it play out from here? Do you think we're going to just enter this just period where nothing happens between them and there's a little bit of quiet discussions in the background? I, I, I can't see anything happening publicly for quite some time now. Well, as I understand it, Liberty do want to keep the British Grand Prix. Of course, it's, it's a very successful race in terms of crowd attendance interest. It's it's important to have races like exactly. that. Exactly. So at the moment, from what I understand, that's what they're pushing for. That's their, their number one aim, no matter what other room is and other people bid in for, for, to host the British Grand Prix. I think on the on the break clause, I think I think too much has been made of it, to be honest. It was in the contract. Well, they held the press conference. They did. <laughs> they did. But to be fair... The break clause had to be activated before the British Grand Prix. They didn't put that in the contract. Liberty, said they, the Liberty did say they'd defer that, though. They could, but what's the point of deferring? Well, to avoid it overshadowing the British Grand Prix would be... This is the antagonistic thing. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the thing is, people were expecting a result before the British Grand Prix. True. Whether that would have helped the scenario by just waiting another weekend or not. Endlessly talking about it, yeah. yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't really see whether... So I kind of see their point on that score. I think the, everyone knew that they were going to do it, whether they were going to do it before the British Grand Prix or afterwards, because they can't afford to do, they can't afford to pay uh, the fee. Twenty five million in twenty twenty six. I mean, they're losing money already. They just, it just isn't viable for them to do it. Um, I think both sides know that they want to make a deal, and it's clear that Silverstone are probably now going to try and think, well, this is the chance here that we can actually not have to struggle every single year. So let's try and push for that and give ourselves the best chance to do that. I think you're right. I don't think we're going to. We're going to hear a solution to this until twenty nineteen. You know, twenty nineteen. What we don't need to hear before then. Liberty don't need to rush into any decision to do it. Silverstone are now slightly on the back foot because because of that. Um, is that such a bad thing? I still don't think that's a problem. Liberty want a British Grand Prix, and I think Silverstone's still the front runner. Yeah, I think the key point you make there is that both sides want the same outcome, which is the British Grand Prix to continue at Silverstone. It just seems well, like... A, with, with one crucial difference. One side wants it at a nice low cost. <laughs> the other side wants it at a nice high cost. So what's the what's the point in the middle? Yeah, Where, Can absolutely. they find that, that point of equilibrium? I think, you know, the fact that both sides ultimately want the same outcome and it's about working out the details means you probably did, don't need to have such an antagonistic approach to the break doors or such a public a- approach to it. Um, saying we're not going to host the race under these terms. Why not just, you know, have quiet discussions about it and say, look, we both want the same thing. Let's just come to a new arrangement. We we don't like this agreement. It doesn't make sense. Can we come up with a new one? They're doing that anyway, I'm sure. But it just seems that the way it was handled so so publicly didn't seem to. It doesn't seem to help their uh, initial negotiating position. But we'll we'll see. When push comes to shove, I think as. as- both suggesting both sides will want this to, to happen so unless something goes wrong from here there, there will be a British Grand Prix at Silverstone in 2020 and beyond I would imagine we can that that statement may well come back to haunt me but <laughs> there's a point where you see both sides it's beneficial for them to reach an agreement but there's many a time when both sides should agree on something and, and it doesn't happen if and of course we should also say the London demo which uh, Liberty got behind it was great for F1 this, this was a 
this was a huge positive. We haven't seen something quite on this scale before. 19 out of 20 drivers there, and I don't want to get into the fact Lewis Hamilton was the one who he wasn't there. That was it was entirely voluntary whether whether he attended, and I think he paid back the the British public in spades uh, over over the weekend. But when it comes to these events, Liberty are talking about doing them more often, being able to do them to promote F1 in different different cities. It's a it's a good direction, isn't it, to actually take F1 a little bit to the people. Uh, definitely the london event went down really well you could see by the number of people that turned up especially on the short notice of when it was officially made public and all the details had come out and and that was obviously down to to security reasons just just to dig into that because a lot of people didn't necessarily understand this because this obviously the talks to put this together have been going on for quite a while and there were it was the mayor's office wasn't it specifically that said you cannot announce this before that point otherwise it's off so this this is why that, that was my understanding this is why it was not publicized Yes. Before. Yeah, Formula One obviously wanted to, to publicise it to the hills because they wanted to get as many people down and, and use the event for what it's supposed to be, to, to bring F1 to people who perhaps don't watch F1 anymore. But given what's been going on in the world and um, recently, they ha- the mayor's office had huge security concerns. And to make it happen, both sides wanted to make it happen. The best way they saw it could happen is to, to, to deal with it this way, given 24 hours notice from all the details. And, that, you know, as it was, everything went out very smoothly. So do we think that this is a, the forerunner to a London Street Grand Prix then? Do you think with Liberty talking about how they they want more street races or more city centre races for Formula One? It's a nice idea and it would be spectacular, but these races are very, very difficult to make happen. They need a lot of money. They need a lot of cooperation. Even just dealing with road furniture, making a circuit happen and all the facilities and the amenities and the security and all that is, is very, very difficult. I wouldn't rule it out completely, but the London, I mean, an actual city centre London race in that sort of area, close to zero chance of happening. Anything can happen. If, if a, For example, if the British government said, we have absolutely got to have this, then it can happen because that's how things happen. I can't see that happening. Slightly out of centre, possibly. But there's talk about kind of Docklands areas there is some space there to do it it's a little bit more more credible but I think we're quite a long way off being able to put something like that together yeah I think a central location um race is just impossible in London I know we've had races in Singapore but you know the, the amount of traffic and the the obstacles is nowhere near what you'd have and to Singapore do it's quite nicely sort of out of the way in some ways there near it's, the water <laughs> yeah exactly so you're you're only compromising on sort of a couple of sides of the circuit. So it does, just the, the geography of Singapore makes that work surprisingly well. It feels like it's on the edge of the city centre, like a bolt-on rather than just dominating it. Docklands it is then. There we go. London Easy. Grand Prix in the Docklands. Bye-bye Silverstone. But you see then I just, like, <laughs> I know you're big. Liberty I know you're joking, big. I just... 80 times around the, the, the O2, <laughs> the, millennium, the old Millennium Dome. Maybe underground. We Come did achieve line. 20 times around the circle line. <laughs> circle line isn't a circle anymore oh that's fair that's fair you see that every, every, every time a coherent sensible well thought out plan comes up someone just has to have a little bit of a thing around the M25 London Orbital that's the way to go yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, I think we're, I think we're a long imagine way imagine the traffic you need be, a lot of blue flags for that oh definitely definitely so many penalties Sebastian Vettel would be furious <laughs> <laughs> get that Ford Monday out of my way well, I think I think we're into the realms of fantasy there, so we're not a million miles away from uh, from the possible from uh, the, those who are trying to put together a, a London Grand Prix. It'd be brilliant if it can happen, and there are some serious, credible people trying to make something happen, but it needs a lot of things in place. 
it's not just a question of getting some money together and making it happen. You need support in high places, and you need a willingness from a lot of people to make it happen. So it's a it's a it's a big challenge, but it would be fantastic if we could do it. Wait for Brexit first, then. What does Brexit mean? <laughs> it means Brexit. Ah, oh, there we go. There we go. We solved, we solved the problems there. Now we're talking about tricky negotiations with uh, with Liberty and the British Grand Prix. There's a there's a whole there's a whole different one. I think before we get uh, too bogged down in, in Brexit, we should probably uh, probably end there. Uh, so thanks very much to Ben Anderson and Lawrence Barreto for your insights into the British Grand Prix. So I'd invite everyone to check out autosport.com for all the latest news and features from F1 and, and motorsport. A copy of Autosport magazine out Thursday. I'm sorry to say it's not Ben's Grand Prix report this week. It, it's me, so I, I apologise for the for the reduction in quality of service. Normal service will be <laughs> resumed uh, for the Hungarian Grand Prix. Indeed. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes and all manner of other other platforms. We try and uh, get a podcast out each and every week, which we normally do. Although there's occasional gaps depending on, on what's going on. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey, what's up, guys? This is MMA fighter Clay Guida, and I'm not afraid of anyone or anything, but losing my hair was an entirely different kind of fight. So if you're suffering from hair loss like I was, then you got to check out my boys at Bosley. Pound for pound, they are the champions of hair restoration. That's why I turned to Bosley to get my hair back. The entire Bosley team was so professional and kind from start to finish. All it took was a simple one-day procedure, and I was on my way back to rocking my full hair again. So take it from me. Don't wait if you are thinning or receding. I'm so thrilled with my results, I just wish I would have went to Bosley sooner. It's time to finally knock out hair loss because the best is yet to come. Check out Bosley today. When MMA fighter Clay Guida was losing his hair, he trusted Bosley to get it back. Now it's your turn. Get a free information kit, plus get a $250 off gift card when you text CLAY to 203203. Text CLAY to 203203. Or go to bosley.com. That's bosley.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.